Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you that you are willing to hear the hearts of people who, whose lives are characterized by deep evil and walking away from you. But your heart is always moved by the humble of heart. And you, you establish new beginnings, new hope, new days ahead for those that turn to you. Amen. I think it's been an important series to look at the, the road trip. And we're finishing up with two people at the end of the trip. But we're looking at three people whose lives were changed, who listened to God in different ways. Esther, of course, very significant person listening to God. But then we have Manasseh, who wasn't until later in his life that he really grabbed a hold of God. And of course we have next week Samuel, who it seems like Samuel was the kind of person who was in a Christian home and always was in a Christian home and always was faithful to God. And somehow the rest of us plug plug somewhere in the middle, don't we? From Manasseh and from Samuel. My dad grew up, he grew up in Chicago, and he came to Christ in Salem Free Church in Chicago. And he would say that he had a bunch of friends at the time that were a bunch of rough ones. He talks about they used to have fistfights out in front of church. Can you imagine that? Fistfights. And there was one, the most ruffian of all, his name was George Mosby. And George Mosby was a lifelong friend of my dad. And my dad was one who stuck with his friends, many of his friends, even through difficult times throughout their lives. He moved up to the area where we did, up to southern Wisconsin, and George Mosby became very successful as a businessman. But one of the problems George had was that he had a real problem with alcohol and drinking. And it really, over time, really took a toll on his life. And over time, he, his life fell apart. He lost his wife and divorce and, and some of his kids. And I remember Susan was in my class, and Susan was always one of the wildest ones in the class. But George Mosby, near the latter part of his life, my dad one time went to his little apartment that he had up on a third story, just kind of a shack of a place. And he found him almost unconscious on the floor. He called my brother Dave, and they went up there, and they put George, tied him to a chair, and brought him down three steps of, uh, three steps flights of stairs and brought him to the hospital to detox him. It was that experience, however, that grabbed a hold of George. And he remembered the the faith of his youth. And George became a changed man. The word is he moved down to Texas and and, and he became a significant part of a little small church down in Texas. And George Mosby, the latter part of his life, even though all the harm that was caused throughout his life, He came to Christ, and those last years of his life were lived so faithfully to him. And that's where God met him in a powerful way. I had an uncle whose name was Clem. Uh, My mom's sister was always, seems to be in trouble in all her marriages. She was multiple marriages. And one of her third or fourth marriages was to Uncle Clem, who also was, I think, his third or fourth marriage. What I remember of Uncle Clem, that he was not a person who followed after Christ in any way at all. But Uncle Clem, near the latter part of his life, uh, held a cancer, a very significant cancer. And as through cancer, somehow God grabbed a hold of him, and his life was changed. I was 16 years old, and my folks said to me, you're going to take a week in the summer, and you're going to go spend a week taking care of Uncle Clem. I didn't even know who Uncle Clem was. 
you imagine a 16-year-old, all the fun I was having, got to go stay with Uncle Clem. I hated the thought. I didn't like going to Chicago anyhow. But I spent a week with Uncle Clem, and it was life-changing. Here was a man who was serious about God, who was serious about the Scriptures, and he would unfold to me in most remarkable way the sacred word of God that he had come to admire and appreciate. It was shortly after that Uncle Clem died of cancer, but I can't tell you how significant it was to see a man who didn't live a good life. At the end of his life, he followed God so faithfully. I'll never forget it. It's kind of sad that it, it, people have to come to the end of their rope, sometimes traumatic experiences where they finally wake up. And somehow God gets, comes into their lives because there's something happening in their souls and their spirit that intersects with God's truth. And even later in their lives, they get it right. The message this morning is it's never too late. It's never too late. I, thought, I remember when I was growing up, there was such an odd phrase, I remember, there was almost a resentment in the church for people who came to Christ late in their lives. What's well, not fair? Those people could live any way they want and then come to faith at Christ in the end. It's not fair. Folks, there's something very peculiar about that statement. Very peculiar. Isn't there something about living the life that God prescribes for us in his sacred word that's the best life to live? When I was growing up, it was a rather legalistic type of setting, and I think in that setting, that kind of thinking was hatched. Well, I don't like living this way because it's not fair that I've got to live all the rules of God, and these other people get to go do what they want, and at the end, they just cry out to God. It's foolish and it's stupid. The story of King Manasseh. Let me give you a little, just a brief history you, you can land with Solomon, because we all know about Solomon. Solomon's life is a tragedy. He went the other direction in his life. At the end of his life, he turned away from God. It was during Solomon that the seeds of division, they were before that, but the seeds of division in the kingdom of Israel happened. And if you know anything about the history, it divided into two nations. Israel to the north, the ten tribes, and Judah and Benjamin to the south. In the north of Israel, there were eight dynasties, eight dynasties, over a period of 210 years, and there was not one good king. Not one good king in all of the dynasties of Israel in 210 years, there was not one king that followed after God. And they were swept away into exile by the Assyrians by the hand of God. Because God tarries long, but God judges, and he draws a line in the sand. Judah, there was an unbroken line because there was a promise given to David in the Davidic promise and covenant that there would be a king on the throne all the way until the eternity. Always there'll be somebody on the throne. And that was honored. And even in the midst of the ups and downs of the southern kingdom, there was an unbroken line that finds its ultimate expression, the Messiah, in Matthew chapter 1. And Jesus becomes the fulfillment of a king on the throne for all eternity. That kingdom lasted another 135 years after Israel and was swept away into exile by the Babylonians because God had drawn the line in the sand. And there were only really four really good kings, Asa and Jehoshaphat, which is the only of all of the kings of Israel where there was a father and a son dynasty that followed after God. That tells us something, doesn't it? We worry sometimes with our kids and we say, well, we just agonize because maybe they won't follow after God. We desire more than anything else. But there's only one instance where the father and the son followed after God. 
There's another King Josiah who had latter reforms after Hezekiah and Manasseh. And he had a great prophet. All great kings have a great prophet. And the great prophet was Jeremiah. To understand Manasseh, first of all, you have to understand his father. His father was Hezekiah, the greatest king of all time. He was an exceptional king. It says that he clung to the Lord. Isn't that great? Wouldn't that be great of you to say that he clung to the Lord? He was an exceptional godly character. He launched a great reform, enormous reform in the land, destroyed all the, the high places, and there was only few kings. You know they are great kings of reformation when they destroy the high places of worship, of pagan worship. He destroyed the sacred pole that Moses raised up in the wilderness of this, that stopped the plague with the serpent because it was being worshipped, and so he destroyed it. He demanded of the people that they worship the true God, who is Yahweh. He experienced countless miracles in battle. He was delivered in Jerusalem when he was a time of great peril, when the, the Assyrians surrounded Jerusalem, was all that's left, and they taunted God. And recording Isaiah 36 through 39, there was a gracious deliverance where overnight a plague struck the Assyrian army. And Jerusalem was miraculously delivered. You'll never forget an experience like that. He was mortally ill near the end of his life, and he cried out to God, and he beseeched him, and he healed him, and extended 15 years of his life because of this great king. He listened, folks, to the words of the great prophet Isaiah. He listened to the words of the prophet Isaiah. At the same time, with this massive launched reform that cleaned up the land, Isaiah is pleading with the people to worship God from their hearts. Circumcise your hearts unto God. Come to him and clean up your, your inner being because it's not good enough just to do the right things. It starts with the inner heart. And folks, we're fooling ourselves if we think we can launch reforms in any setting and just clean up the behavior of people and not transform the deep hearts of people. And that's where the gospel is powerful. It was during this extended 15 years of his life that Manasseh was born. I'm sure he heard the stories of his father of the great battles that were won. I'm sure his father told him about the spiritual reforms that, that were launched. He heard about the miracle of God's great deliverance from Jerusalem. He, father, told him about the answered prayer to extend his life. And he listened to the sermons of the great prophet Isaiah preaching and prophesying in the very courts of the king. He became king when he was 12 years old and he reigned for 55 years. He did the absolute opposite of his father. You see, the seeds are always there to reverse anything that's good. They're always there. He undid his father's reforms. He abandoned the true God and produced the crash Baal and Ashtaroth, Ashtaroth gods. He participated in witchcraft, divination, consulted mediums and spiritists. He did not have one significant prophet that was ever mentioned in his reign. He was ruthless of character and shed much blood. He steered the kingdom into utter paganism. He was the worst king. The worst, and he was worse than all the nations around him. You know, his, his behavior is mentioned in the king's account. But the accounts in Chronicles mention something that is astounding that isn't mentioned in the king's account. And that was read by Tony, read it very well. In verse 10, as you look at the text, it said, The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. 
So God took him into exile and put hooks in his nose and bound him to shackles and took him to Babylon with the ruthless Assyrians. That's what they did. This had to be an absolutely traumatic experience for this king. But the beauty of it is, the beauty of it is, in his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord and he humbled himself greatly. Isn't that sad that it took 55 years and 12 years and 55 years for him in a terrible, excruciating experience of his life that he finally seeks the favor of the Lord? And the Lord is moved by his prayers. The Lord is moved after 55 years of destruction. He's moved by his prayers and listens to his plea. And the Lord brought him back to Jerusalem and let him reign again. Can you imagine the miracle of that? You see, God's heart is moved when our hearts are moved. It says that Manasseh knew the Lord as God. He came to true faith. And in things he did was to try to undo the damages of 55 years. It was so, diff- so pronounced that what he did for 55 years that 30 years later, the prophet Jeremiah is praying to God on behalf of the people because they're ready for exile. God's ready to judge them. And he's praying and he says, don't pray. God says to the prophet, don't pray. Because of what Manasseh did for 55 years, the paganism, what he did, and the hearts of the people, don't pray. It's never too late to turn to God. It's never too late. And it's sad that it took a traumatic experience in his life to turn him around. And it's often true, sadly enough, in many people that we care so deeply about, that we're praying our whole lives. We desire them to come to God and we pray diligently that sadly enough it might take something where they come to the end of their rope and they realize that their self-sufficiency no longer can carry them. And it's only by the power of God that they thrust themselves at the mercy and grace of a loving and gracious God. One of the great books... I think my favorite of the Old Testament is the book of Ecclesiastes. It is the most contemporary book. You read, can you read Ecclesiastes and you say, that's the culture I live in today. It's precisely there. And this is not a person of who lacks faith. It's a person who's a realist and looks at life and says, you go down these roads without God, and it's what it's going to look like, folks. Then he also has these glimpses of what it looks like to follow God. And at the end of the book, the climax of the book, he says to this, remember your creator when you're young before the days of trouble come. And remember means to take strong action, folks. He's pleading with the people of his audience that you have to remember your creator when you're young because the difficulty when you turn away from him is that you might have a life of 55 years where you don't follow God faithfully and just think of what that means. Remember him. Remember him. And most conversions we know come when the heart is tender, when people are young. Remember him when before you die, because when you die, folks, it is too late. No more opportunities. Your destiny apart of God is sealed. Reading the book Heaven by, in our study this summer, one of the first things he says is hell is the default def- def- uh, destination of those who do not turn to Christ. We live in a culture where everybody thinks they're going to heaven. Hell is the default destination of those who do not bow their knee 
before the living God. And that comes from the words of Jesus, our loving Savior. At the end, he says, what you've got to do is fear God, keep his commandments. That's where you're good. Folks, you've got to fear God. You've got to worship him. You've got to revere him. You've got to keep his commandments, and it's never, ever too late. But it comes through an inward transformation. Paul says the time of God's favor is now. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the opportunity for people to recognize their spiritual brokenness and thrust themselves on the mercy and grace of the only one who can save them, which is God, through our Savior, Jesus Christ. And turn away from God is dangerous, and one can live a life of great pain. But all he desires is for them to experience peace and wholeness. This fellow says, for years, a beautiful antique table has graced the entryway of our home. But when I first saw it, there was, no, there was nothing about the beauty at all, only the promise of beauty. We acquired the table some 40 years ago in the days of the first pastorate on the plains of southwestern Oklahoma. The little farming community of Hobart was undergoing a great transition. The kids of those wheat farmers went away to college but never came back to the farms. Instead, after earning their degrees, you know what happened. They went away to the city. So when the parents died, the one could take, nobody could take over the family farm, and there was all kinds of these wonderful possessions that were there. On Saturdays, we had the most unbelievable auctions where people came from all over. This unique table caught my eye in an auction. For many years, probably decades, they just sat out in the barn. Chickens roosted on it, greasy tools sat on it. In fact, the years, all sorts of trash had been thrown on it. It was filthy and flimsy, but when the auctioneer called the number, nobody put in a bid. So I did. I bought that old table for just a couple of dollars and next week took it to the man who loved to restore old furniture. And he took it to his shed and he stripped it down. After seven days, it became absolutely astoundingly beautiful. To this day, the table is one of our cherished possessions and conversation pieces. And he says, as I've said, this man says, it's never too late for a new beginning for any one of us. And what is even more remarkable, he uses folks like you and me to help people find new beginnings. There are people all around us who have been relegated to an old barn somewhere, beaten and broken by all of life's circumstances, and finally put off to the side where they began to lose their beauty. But there is a land of beginning again for all of us and for all the people around us. Let's pray. Stir our hearts, Father. It's not just about doing right behaviors. It's about a heart that is deeply sensitive to the moving of the Spirit of God. Become indifferent as your people, even as your people. Lives are broken. Those who through life circumstances, needs a touch of the Savior this day. Move our hearts, Father, to be the catalysts in, the, in your hands and feet and mouthpieces of the gospel of Christ this day.